Amen. Well, if you would remain standing as we read God's Word and go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 19, which is the second conversation between Job and Bildad. And so here now, as God speaks to us through His holy, life-giving, and inspired Word, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me? And break me in pieces with words. These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you so clearly speak to us in your word, that you bring comfort to us through your word. So we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit that we might understand it, that we might apply it, that we may see Jesus Christ in it. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that I appreciate most about pastors and writers from long ago was their ability to think deeply and biblically about suffering, that they had a way about meditating, reflecting upon suffering that was so biblical and so comforting. Uh, One such author was a man named Thomas Boston. Now, if you know anything about Thomas Boston, He experienced much suffering in his life. He had only four 
of his 10 children outlive childhood. His wife struggled with mental health most of her life, most of their marriage. He had severe health issues, and he even suffered extreme pressures in the ministry. Yet Thomas Boston wrote a book called The Crook in the Lot, which was based on Ecclesiastes 7.13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And really, Boston's point in his entire book is just to communicate the simple point that God is sovereign over human suffering. That he's sovereign over the pains and difficulties of life in the various ways they affect us. And yet, it's our responsibility as those who believe in our Heavenly Father and in His goodness that we bear patiently under that suffering. And so he gives comforts along the way in this book to ensure Christians that God has good designs in suffering. Well, we're coming to a book with Job who certainly has a crook in his lot. Job has experienced great suffering, not only just in his own life, but of course, even with these comforters, these so-called comforters. And so we have Bildad coming along here, eager to straighten that crook in his lot and finding it unsuccessful. And so in chapter 18, we find Bildad actually going to the point of breaking Job, that he would actually break him in order to somehow get him to recognize the truth. It seems, at least in chapter 18, that Bildad has given up. And so that's what we're going to find in this passage this evening. And I just want us to look at two simple points. First, it's Bildad's hopelessness. And secondly, it's Bildad's hopefulness. And if you thought that round two of Bildad would have produced more comforting words, right from the get-go in verse two, Bildad swiftly removes that notion. Look at verse Two, how long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock shall be removed out of its place? So Bildad's coming along and saying, Job, your position's a non-starter. Do you really think that we are stupid enough to believe that you are the exception to the rule that the righteous actually suffer? And so here you have Bildad questioning Job's sanity. He's saying, look, Job, you're not that special. It's impossible that you could be an exception at this point. Do you think the rock can be removed from the earth? And so you can get in these words a a sense of impatience in Bildad. It seems as almost the conversation's over for him from the beginning. Bildad is frustrated He's grown weary of Job, and so here he is just speaking to him these words of condemnation. And of course, it's in this context in chapter 18 that then Bildad enters into sermonic form. And you could almost call what we find in the rest of the chapter uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Because really, what Bildad does is say, say to Job, look, if you really think you are innocent... If you really think you were righteous and you are unwilling to repent, well, all that remains for you is hell. All that remains for you, Job, is the wrath of God. And so Bildad jumps into this sermon in chapter 18, and he describes these four horrors of hell. And we will look at them very briefly. First, 
Hell is the place of darkness. If you jump down to verse 5, you'll see it. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. There's this fourfold repetition of light going out in hell. That hell is such a place of suffocating darkness, there's not even a hint of goodness to be found in it. There's not even a hint of hope. So here Bildad is saying, you're going to the place of immense darkness. Second, he says that hell is an inescapable punishment. Inescapable punishment. Look at verse 8 and 9. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. So the main word picture here is that of a trap that the wicked are going along in their way, not seeing where their paths lead, and they set their foot on the trap. But this trap of hell is inescapable. It will not let go. And so here Bildad is saying, Job, this is what you've walked into. Inescapable punishment. And thirdly, hell is a house of terrors. If you just jump down to verse 11, terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. And verse 14, he is torn from the tent in which he trusts and is brought to the king of terrors. And Bildad seems to be picking up on what Job has said earlier in the book, that terrors surround him on every side. The suffering that is plaguing him is causing him such immense turmoil on the inside that he is terribly afraid. And here Bildad isn't comforting Job, but he's saying, Job, where you're going is far worse. Where you're going is the house of terrors, where you will meet the king of terrors face to face. And then fourthly and finally from Bildad's sermon, hell is the place of perishing. Hell is the place of perishing. If you jump down to verse 17, you'll see it there. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. In verse 19, he has no posterity or progeny among his people. Job will have no one who will bear his name, no family to represent him, no one to remember him. He will be removed, erased from the records of history to be forgotten forever. And so you see Bildad's sermon to Job, sinners in the hand of an angry God. Hell is awaiting him. And it's really at verse 21 that he punches Job with the the remaining power of the pain he's bringing to Job. Look at verse 21. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who know not God. No appeal to repentance. Simply stating, this is where you're going, Job. You belong to the wicked. Surely this is where you are going. Hell awaits you. And so it's no wonder why Job responds in verse 1 of chapter 19. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Sure, Bildad has preached a good sermon on hell. You could actually probably substantiate it, every point that we just looked at from the words of Jesus. Yes, these are all true things. But here Bildad is using these truths about hell to bulldoze over Job, to break him into pieces, to put such a force upon him, to break him in two. And so Job recognizes that. 
And there's something of a warning here for us, isn't there? We don't only need to bear patiently under our own suffering, but we need to bear patiently with others who do suffer. It's not just our responsibility to embrace our suffering with patience, but to embrace sufferers with patience. Here you have Bildad under such impatience. He's got a hurrying spirit about him that he just wants to simply break Job. And yet, of course, that is not what we are called to do as we comfort Christians who suffer, those who grieve consistently. Often those griefs last for many years. Someone who has a child that's walked away from the faith and it cuts them deeply. Can you bear patiently when they talk about it almost every day? Of course, the application here is quite clear. Don't be a bildad. But it's much more than that. It's remember Jesus Christ. He did not break bruised reeds, nor did he put out flickering wicks, but he spoke a word that could actually sustain the weary. And so here we have Bildad's hopelessness, and now we turn to Job's hopefulness. In 1505, Martin Luther was on his way to Erfurt, where he studied law back from his parents' house. And as he was on his journey, he came upon a great storm, which understandably frightened him to death. Uh, He was very afraid about this storm. The lightning bolt had struck very close to where he was walking. And so he cried out for a mediator, cried out for help. And what did he say? He said, Saint Anne, help me, for I will become a monk. Now, if you know anything about Martin Luther, one of those dominating themes in his life was his quest to get a God that was actually for him. And at this point in his life, in July of 1505, Martin Luther thought that God was against him. That here, surely this storm was proof that God was going to bring all of his his wrath and punishment upon Martin Luther. And, And so we know of the rest of the story, how he discovers justification by faith, how God is actually for him on the merits of Jesus Christ. But that's often a question that many face. Is God for me or is he against me? And suffering has that way of intensifying and magnifying that question. It makes it much, much bigger. It makes the stakes far more serious. Is God for me or is he against me? And Job's answer at this point is simply that it does seem that God is against me. Everything in my life seems to point in that direction. Look at what I've become. It looks like God is now against me. And to really summarize the first 20 verses of chapter 19, you could understand that Job feels forsaken by God and forsaken by his friends. And when he looks at his life, yeah, it does look like God is against me because he's forsaken me and he's made all of my friends forsake me. If you just jump down to verse 6, you can see exactly that. Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. He's actually playing on what uh, Bildad just said in the previous chapter. Bildad was saying that you've actually walked into the net, but here Job's professing his own innocence, saying, look, no, it's not my wickedness, but I do understand that God is sovereign. He's put his net around me. I can't understand it. 
but I do know that he is sovereign over it. And it's much more serious even than that. If you jump down to verse 11 and 12, look how he describes God. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me in a camp around my tent. I don't think Job could be in a worse spot than this. He has that deep, dark feeling that God is against him, that God is waging war on him. He can't understand it. He can't fully put his mind around it. But if he just looks simply at his life, it does appear that God is against Job. And even if you look at his friends and family, that truth is more sustained. Look at verse 13. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged, estranged from me. And then verse 17 and 18. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. Here Job is a man who is the living definition of having it all stripped away from him. Even his family, closest friends, they've all turned against him. Even that random child out in the street doesn't want to look at Job's face. Here he has felt that experience of total abandonment, total loneliness, that he is the only one in the world. Even it seems as though God was against him. And as we have seen already in the book of Job, when Job contemplates his suffering, he knows that it's not because of any particular sin in his life. He claims his own innocence. And he knows that the only way that this could possibly be dealt with is if he gets his day in court. That if he has a mediator that can take his case before God and plead his innocence. And so we even saw this last week. That Job is hoping that there's a mediator out there that can plead his case. Well, here in chapter 19, he moves from, I need a mediator, to I know I have one. Look at verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. And so it's here that we have that little glimmer of light for Job. It's that little sparkle of light in the the very dark cave that he's in. At the end, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. This is Job's hopefulness. And there's three aspects of this hope that I want you to see this evening. First, it's a resolved hope. At this point in the story, nothing's gotten better for Job. Nothing's changed. No friends have come to comfort him. Nothing of his possessions have been restored to him. And yet he has confidence. He has resolve. He says, I know. He has a confident hope in the darkness. There's something out there I know that will make it right in the end, even though I cannot see it or fathom it. At this point, and of course, this is faith. It least is the Hebrews 11.1 definition of it, isn't it? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence of things not seen. And so it's a resolved hope. Second, Job's hope is a redeeming hope. 
for I know that my Redeemer lives. Job has hope in a Redeemer. And what this likely meant to Job was somebody of his own flesh, a kinsman Redeemer, who would take his case, would argue in the courts of heaven, and defend him. It would be his champion, his vindicator. And of course, he's looking forward to a day where his case will be brought before God by a Redeemer. And so Job's hope is a redeeming hope. And then thirdly, Job's hope is a resurrection hope. You may notice, if you have an ESV, that at the bottom, there's a footnote on verse 25, which simply renders the verse as, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at at the last he will stand upon the dust. And that is the dust of Job's very own grave. Job has confidence, of course, but he doesn't think that this case will be brought today. He thinks it's going to happen in the future. He thinks that after he's long gone and buried, that's when his case will be brought before God and his Redeemer will bring it to God. And so really what you have here is a resurrection hope. Job is looking to the afterlife. He's looking to something beyond this world, this current estate that he's in. And he's looking to it saying, that is where my hope is. It's a resurrection hope. And if Job's hope is a beacon of light in the darkness, our hope is a bright shining sun, isn't it? We know the name of this Redeemer, who is the only Redeemer of God's elect, the Lord Jesus Christ. Job saw it in darkness, but of course, in the New Testament, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we know the name of this Redeemer, don't we? He is that kinsman redeemer who has borne the likeness of sinful flesh on our behalf. He takes up our cause and intercedes on our behalf in the courtroom of heaven. He is fully furnished to represent his people. He's the true righteous sufferer. He drank the cup of Bildad's four terrors of hell. and He drank it to the fullest for his children. He was forsaken by friends, and he, Christ, the Redeemer, cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the one who experienced the fullness of that forsakenness that Job is pointing to. And so we know of this Redeemer. We know the Redeemer's name. Though Job saw it in darkness, we see it clearly as the sun. Of course, Christ did this all to redeem his people. So that what Bildad said of Job would never be true of Christ's church, that we would never experience the torments of hell. Christ has set us free. In 1937, the founder of Westminster Seminary, J. Gresham Machen, was heading on a trip, and he sent his final telegram before he died to his colleague, John Murray. And if you know anything of that story, he says, iconically, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And I suppose if telegrams were around in Job's day, he may have wrote, so thankful that my Redeemer lives. No hope without it. That was Job's hope. And it must be ours as well. 
How can I know that God is for me even in the dark night of the soul? My Redeemer lives. How can I know that I'm saved from the horrors of hell? I know that my Redeemer lives. How can I know that God will one day remove the crook in my lot? I know that my Redeemer lives and he will at last stand upon the dust. Friends, look to Jesus Christ. The root of the matter is found in this one. He is the Redeemer of God's elect. Elect, What a hope. Do you have it? Does that belong to you? Have you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone? Friends, here is a great Redeemer that is offered to you this day. He is a fully sufficient Savior to bring you out of Bildad's four terrors of hell and into everlasting joy and splendor. He can make it all right. He can make the sad things untrue. This is the Redeemer. Do you know him? Because if you do know him, you will be able to come to God whenever he strikes your lot, whenever he puts a crook in it. You can trust him because you know that your Redeemer lives. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that what was concealed in the Old Testament has now been revealed in the New Testament. That we know the identity and the character of this one Redeemer, the hope of the nations, Lord, the one whom you say you are well pleased in. Lord, we long for that day when we get to see our Redeemer face to face in our resurrected bodies with this glorious hope. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.